would turn your Bibles to First uh, Corinthians 15. We are looking at verses 29 through 34. I'll have a word of prayer, and we'll read the Word of God. Thank you, Father, for drawing us here this day to rest in the hope of the resurrection, to clear the clutters of our lives that we may see the eternities that are before us. Father, to know that it is finished on the cross has drawn so many of us into the heavenlies. Father, I ask that you give my beloved friends ears to hear and eyes to see. And Father, as we face as we face the day moment by moment until that day that our faith becomes sight, May we live lives, the focus of your resurrection, the power of your sacrifice to the glory of your kingdom. In Christ's name, amen. Beginning in verse 29. <clears throat> Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all. Why then are they baptized for them? Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by boasting in you that I have in, which you have in, I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink. For tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought. Stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. The Apostle Paul in the 15th chapter is defending the resurrection. First 11 verses, he says, this is the evidence of the resurrection. I mean, 500 plus witnesses of the resurrection pretty much seals it. I mean, if you take 500 witnesses into any court, um, you're going to win a conviction or a pardon, depending on which side you want to be on. Um, and that's how he starts this argument. You need to also understand that 1 Corinthians is the first time that we have documentation on the resurrection, other than the Old Testament writing. And it is, chapter 15 is probably the greatest emphasis and focus on the resurrection. He even shows us the plan of the resurrection. How does it unfail? Each in his own order. And now what he's doing is motivations for the resurrection, the resurrection motivation. And I divided this into three subpoints: incentives. Incentives. And I gave you the one last week, incentive for salvation in verse 29. Those who are baptized for the dead, I believe the baptized is reference to salvation. And there are people who are being baptized. There are people who are being saved because of death. When people die, loved ones die, um, we want hope. And if there is no resurrection, you are now starting to remove incentives. You're removing motives. Why get saved? 
I mean, that's his argument because he's already mentioned it twice in three verses, if there is no resurrection. So it's obvious that in the context that we have before us, he is dealing with the resurrection and those who would deny that there is a resurrection. The one we're looking at today would be verses 30 through 33, 32, sorry. And it's motive for service. If there is no resurrection, then this flow is obvious. If there is no resurrection, Paul says, why am I doing this? I mean, that's a great argument. Why stand in jeopardy? Why stand in danger every hour? That's what he says. I affirm, brethren. That's verse 31. Verse 30 says, why are we also in danger every hour? Why face that danger? Remove the hope of resurrection and you tear the motivation right out of all service to Jesus Christ. Okay? The only thing that makes people willing to suffer, to makes people willing to endure, to makes people willing to go through all kinds of hardship, to do the work of Christ at any cost, is the fact that someday that work is going to have eternal results. Well, that sounds cold-hearted, doesn't it? You know what? Jesus says, Lo, I come with me in my... 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, Hey, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for what we have done in the body, whether good or bad. It is all over the New Testament. Someday we will stand before Jesus Christ. Someday there's going to be fruit in heaven. Someday that fruit you will see, Jesus tells us, will be that eternal fruit. It will remain forever. You know, someday when you think about it as a Christian, what you do for Christ, will you be able to look at him and say, here I am. I gave the best that I had to long, to be overwhelmed in passion, to have it to be the single utmost desire of the soul. To hear Jesus say, well done, true and faithful servant. And you know what? It's going to make it worth it. I don't care what the suffering is. It's flat out going to be worth it. If there is nothing more than to be spiritually absorbed into what Linsky calls an eternal fog, you're not going to be who you are now. The grave is the end of it. As those who were trying to teach in verse 12, there is no resurrection, then there is no reason to give my life as a sacrifice now. No reason whatsoever. If this is all there is, then you know what? I highly encourage you, live it up. Get after it. Grab the gusto. Sacrificial service to Christ? And I'm just going to go poof? I don't think so.
I don't think so. When you think about Christianity as underlined by the resurrection, why? That is our hope. Um, the shedding of this earthen vessel that our sister Nelda has done lives in light of one thing, one thing only. The resurrection. We suffer because I can see that ahead. That's what I look at. There are times when you will walk through this life and it will be so black that you are convinced that you can never, ever get through it. And yet, at the end of the blackness will always be the resurrection. And when you focus on that resurrection, that blackness all of a sudden flees. And whatever I'm going through is irrelevant. Listen, I was thinking about this. Why do people punish themselves? Okay, and, and, I, and I mean that. Uh, I moved to Colorado uh, back in the late 70s, and I had one purpose, one goal for my move. Okay? I wanted to be a world-renowned mountain climber. That was it. Okay? And here's how silly I was. Okay? I found my first apartment, and it was on the sixth floor. And I got it on the sixth floor for a reason. Every day when I got off work, I would throw my backpack on with 150 pounds of dumbbells in the back of it and walk those six floors to get to my room, which was really stupid because I had an elevator. And every morning when I got ready to go to work, I would throw that pack on and I would head down them stairs. I climbed anything I could get on every day if I could get on it. Okay? You know, I, I used to smoke. I used to smoke two and a half packs of cigarettes a day when I moved out here. But I got news for you. You're not going to walk 150 pounds upstairs smoking. <laughs> and so I quit smoking. And everybody said, well, you can't do that. Well, here's my options. Okay, and everybody says, well, how did you do that? Because I just moved from one passion to the, the next. I think about athletes. Okay, you watch athletes. Uh, we just got done at the Olympics, and you see the sacrifices that these athletes do. But you know why? Because there is the potential for victory. It's always there. There is this potential for success, for glory, and in some cases, money. That's why they do it. Now listen, you take all that away. Why would you do it? I mean, I would like to tell you that I originally started climbing mountains because um, the purity of being in God's creation and seeing things that only a handful of humanity would ever cherish to see. And that's the biggest bunch of crock you'd ever get out of me. I did it because I could carry a camera. I could take some pictures and sell some pictures. Okay, and I was hoping to make a name for myself, get some endorsements, and just hang out climbing mountains and people paying me to do it thinking, God, this is cool. And that was my purpose. You know what? You take away the glory, the victory, the success, the possibility of money, they're not going to do it. You're going to take professional baseball. Getting ready to go in the World Series, maybe. Okay? 
Them guys going to do that if they do it, have to do it free, have to do an 8 to 5 Monday through Friday, and then they go show up? They ain't going to do it. Football players ain't going to do it. Basketball players ain't going to do it. They ain't none of them going to do it. What about the Christian life? If you remove the glory and rewards, the eternal consequences in that victory, nobody's going to bother with Christianity. In Islam, we've been looking at those people are willing to kill themselves because they think they're going to get 70 virgins in paradise. That's motivation. Paul says here, verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? Every hour? Well, he must be sort of, that's hyperbole. Okay, you know, it's my evangelistic side saying, I'm in danger every hour. Every hour, Paul? Come on, Paul. I mean, every hour, Paul? You get a break, you know. Don't you even take like a little Christian retreat thing? You know, and, and, I, and I read that and I think every hour. Well, look what verse 31 says. The New American Standard translation here says, I affirm, brethren. Okay? That's fascinating translation if you take it back to the original language. Um, it literally means swears an oath. I swear, brethren. And then he says, here's my oath. By the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, what happens? Now listen, I've watched people and I've read a lot on this and they said, well, this is a spiritual crucifixion of self. Listen, he says every day and he makes an oath. He says, I affirm. Some of your translations may say, I protest. The little translation is, I swear by the pride I have in you in Christ. That's the little translation. That is not some spiritual crucifixion he's talking about here. To swear by something means that I am willing to forfeit that something if the word isn't true. He ain't taking an oath on the pride of what Christ has done in the Corinthian believers on a spiritual crucifixion. That ain't what he's saying. He's affirming as true as this is true. And if you look at it, what is he speaking of here? I am boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus. I die daily. And then he'll even reference it. If from human motives, what the heck? He's saying by what Christ has done by the existence of the bride of Christ in the city of Corinth. I swear I die daily. That's impressive. As proud as I am of what Christ has done in you. And let's be realistic. The Corinthian church was a tad bit on the messy side. But as proud as I am of that, that's how truly I say to you, I die daily. This ain't some spiritual mumbo jumbo stuff. No piety in the skyety. If there's no resurrection, why would I do this? 
Why would I be in jeopardy every hour? And then he gives you in 32, if from human motives, if it's in the way of the humanity, from the human viewpoint, only after the manner of men is what he's trying to get at. I fought beasts in Ephesus. Now, some people get, get messed up with this and they try to, uh, to take off on what are the beasts. And, and, I, and, you know, I don't know that you can be emphatic. I don't have any other documentation of this. Nowhere in Scripture does it deal with this. If there's no resurrection, why would I put my life on the line? At the end of his life, 2 Timothy, he concludes, I have fought the good fight. If you look at a later letter that he writes to the Corinthians in chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning at verse 7, he states it this way. But we have this treasure, treasure in earthen vessels, in clay pots, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. The clay pot there, the earthen vessel there, is the pot that was used in the, the home to carry the waste out. I'll let you figure out what I'm talking about. Okay, they didn't have indoor plumbing, but they'd have old clay pots that they didn't probably want to use again. Okay, it wasn't like we were going to take it out and clean it. And you just chuck it over the hill. Dishwater. Here's what he says. Because the treasure is in this vessel, who gets glory for it? God does. But look at what he says. It will not be of ourselves. We are afflicted in every way. We are not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always caring about the body of the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our bodies. We who are constant, we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. That's amazing. Always bearing the dying of Christ. It's, it, Paul's ministry was from problem to problem. I mean, he started out being saved, and what happened in his first event? He has to be lowered in a basket over the wall of Damascus. They just wanted him dead. And it just went downhill from there. I mean, I look at the Apostle Paul and he was a man without a people. The Jews hated him. Why? He was a Pharisee who had become a traitor. And the Greeks said, you're telling me that your king died? Why would I want to serve in your kingdom? He had no country. That's why you look at his writings and you understand that his hope was where? Resurrection, I want out of here. Paul only knew one kind of ministry. Did you know that? One kind of ministry. And it's the one kind of ministry that I despise. I hate it. It's the ministry of confrontation. He slammed headlong with every breath he had into a system every day of his life. 
Basically, Paul's ministry did one thing. It just generated antagonism. I shared with you that I met with a guy and the whole time he was telling me this horrific thing that he was going through and he kept telling me that what he was learning and what he was seeing and I had to keep correcting him that what you're saying is wrong. It's not biblical. It's not wrong. It's not biblical. It's wrong. It's not biblical. And I thought, why in the world would you come to me to be encouraged? Paul says, don't tell me that I've been doing this just for this life. There's no way to live. To be in confrontation every moment that you exist. Throwing my life away to make an investment in the next one. Please hear me. Her precious sister went on to glory. She refused to marry because she knew it would infringe upon her ministry. And her ministry was to teach women to rightly divide truth so that she could present them perfect before God. That was her passion. Think about that for a second. That's kind of tough, isn't it? And you're telling me that she lived that life because, poof, she stepped into an eternal fog? Paul says, I count all things of this life as poop. There, how's that? Dung, manure. Jesus says, don't lay up treasure in this world. Why? Give it away. Invest it in the lives of people. Invest it in the kingdom. Don't pile it up here. Don't pile it up here. Why? Because there's a resurrection. Throw this life away because it is the next that matters. That's amazing. Because every one of us have things that we've got a hold of in this world that we may even hold on just a tad bit tighter than what we need to. And you know what you're saying? Is there really a resurrection? I look at the service in the body of Christ globally, and those who understand the resurrection are those who are knocking themselves out to present the bride of Christ holy and pure, a chaste virgin before the King of kings and Lord of lords. And Paul says, you know what? I've I've gone way too far to buy that. (laughs) Are you kidding me? I've been stoned and left for dead. These beasts in Ephesus, that's amazing what you get out of that. Linsky had almost 14 pages on that. The beast of Ephesus was those who started the riot. Okay. The conflict comes. They did have arena games in Ephesus. Okay. Where you would throw people out to the lions. Okay, and of course, they would all say, well, Paul was a Roman citizen. You can't throw him out to the kitty cats. Well, let me tell you something. (laughs) You throw Paul into the arena, he gets eaten by a lion. Who's protesting? The lion? Paul ain't going to protest. What Roman citizen got eaten? We haven't even seen one. All right, I don't know what it is. I know what there is a legend. In church history that says he did a Daniel thing. 
He got chucked into a pit and all the cats said, we're napping. And messed with all the Romans. I can't prove to you that. But I, I get this because I, the only time this is ever mentioned is here. And so I ask myself this question. How many times does God have to say something to make it true? So I look at this text and say, he fought beasts in Ephesus. If they wanted to speak of the riots, he would have said he fought the riots in Ephesus. He didn't put that. He puts beasts. So what does it mean? He fought the beast in Ephesus. You know, like I said, Linsky's got a lot of writing on these beasts were the rioting people of the city of Ephesus. Whatever it was, I can tell you this, that he was in jeopardy in it. I believe it was beast. Okay? Why? Because that's what it says. And he basically comes to this conclusion in this text and he says, if it's for human effort, human motive, what the heck good is it? Uh, What does it profit me? I fought wild beasts in Ephesus. What does it profit me? What a way to give your life. We die. Poof. Eternal fog. We're out of here. If from human motives I fought the beast in Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised. That's the issue, brothers and sisters. If you're struggling with baptism of the dead and all the rest of that stuff, understand what is the problem that he's dealing with. It ain't got nothing to do with baptism of the dead. It's got to do with there is no resurrection. Because his conclusion is, if there is no resurrection, let us eat and drink tomorrow and we die. He quotes Isaiah 22.13. So basically what he's saying is, (laughs) this ain't a new idea. Listen, let us eat and drink tomorrow we're going to die is the way people with no resurrection hope have always lived in every society, even our society today. That's one of the things that drives me nuts about the church movement thing that is going on, church growth stuff. They want their rewards now. They're living as if there is no resurrection. I don't need a the rewards here. I don't need the accolades here. I have a ministry that is so much similar to Paul's that it just irks me. That's my grandma's word. Irking. All I know is that it's not pleasant. Usually when I irked her, she would take a switch to me. Make a note. (laughs) Don't irk me. (laughs) That is our society. Our society lives for the moment. Why? Tomorrow we may die. And there's no hope. You know what? If you read the wisdom books, there's two wisdom books that we like to talk about and we get all romantic. We have the Song of Solomon and we have the book of Ecclesiastes. Okay. The Song of Solomon was early in Solomon's life. Okay. And it's full of (laughs) yuck. (laughs) 
I know it's a young person because they're looking at, well, I'm going to, and you're going to be beautiful and it's going to be beautiful and we're going to hang out in unity together and it's just going to be beautiful. Okay, at the end of his life, he says, you know all that beauty? <laughs> it's vanity, vanity, all is vanity. <laughs> right? Because he's like, he's like, I've been through it. I've got them all. I've got wisdom and I'm ready to check out of this bus. <laughs> but you read it. Well, I mean, you look at, don't we do that? Song of Solomon, we're young in our lives and we're just, oh. 20 years later, you're like, oh. Yeah, a friend of mine's got a little sticker on the back of his helmet that says, I think, therefore I am single. I'll let you ponder that. I mean, if you read those two contrasting stories, I mean, read the first one and ask yourself a simple question. I'm going to get married, I'm going to have women, and the women are going to be mine, and we're all going to love, and we're going to hang around and eat grapes together forever. And you think I should give my life as a sacrifice? What, are you kidding? For a cause that isn't going to come to pass, there is no resurrection. For a Christ who didn't rise has no effect on me. See how he lays the argument out. If this is from a human motive and I have fought wild beasts in Ephesus, what does it profit me? What good is it? Have you ever pondered that? Have you ever really sit down and thought about it? A resurrected life. And what I do here, I will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of what I have done. Um, go to the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 11. I want to show you something. Now, one of the things you have to do in Scripture, and, and that I think we get sidetracked at, at some time. Listen, if there's no resurrection, there's no eternal fruit. Why live for Christ as a sacrifice if there is no resurrection? Okay, now let me show you something here. Now, remember, when you write these letters originally, there's no verses, okay, and there's no chapter, and and we do some disjustice by sticking chapters in and all of a sudden we think we've changed the thought. And yet the thought doesn't change. If you pick it up there at verse 33, chapter 11. Who by faith they conquered, performed acts of righteousness, obtained the promises, shut the mouths of lions. Quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, and from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back the dead by resurrection and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonments. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and in goatskins, being destitute and afflicted and ill-treated. Men of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering in the deserts and in the mountains and caves and holes in the ground. All of these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. What was promised? 
a better resurrection. Because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Okay, now watch what I, I want to show you something here. Because chapter 12, we immediately stop, and, but you can't because the first word of chapter 12 is what? Therefore. You know what he just did? He goes to the Faith Hall of Fame and he says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses. Why? Because the, the cloud of witnesses is not a bunch of saints up in heaven looking through the clouds watching us. God, that's the silliest thing I ever heard of mine. You know what he's saying? Because there is a cloud of believers that have gone before you. This isn't a new phenomenon, this walk of faith. He says, they are surrounding us. Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do I do that? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith. Look at what it says next. This is amazing. I want to be a follower of Jesus. For the joy set before him. What was the joy set before him? The cross. Yo, dude. Wait a minute. I read the cross. That ain't got no happy joy in it at all. Why did he do it? He despises his shame. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. You know what that means? Resurrected. The better resurrection. I can look at the cross and say, nail me on it. Why? It will bring me great joy. I can be sawn in two. It will bring me great joy. Can you handle mocking? Should bring you great joy. Why? For the joy set before him. Jesus Christ walked to the cross, never even whimpered, never complained, never even condemned those who were condemning him. And he did it because of the anticipation of resurrection glory. Peter was crucified, history says, upside down the day after his wife. And he did it because of resurrection glory. Paul had his head removed in the Mamatine prison. Stephen was stoned and said, Father, lay not this charge against those who are murdering me because of resurrection glory. It goes on and goes on and goes on and it goes on. Why? For the joy that is before me. What is the joy that is before me? Resurrection. A literal bodily resurrection. It is going to be so cool because we are going to be our individuals. You're going to be just like, well... Maybe not. Just like you are. You will not have the ability to sin. It will be impossible. But your personality, who you are, your conscience, what you are, what you've been through, you will be that person. And you get to be that for eternity with no ability to sin. I'm thinking that's kind of cool. And that should set the joy before me. Paul is back to, back to our text. Paul says, if there is no resurrection, why in the world would I do that? And yet, because of the resurrection, he says, I willingly, lovingly, longingly throw my life away for the furtherance of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Nothing takes importance 
over my sacrifice for my Lord and my Savior. Listen, that ought to be incentive. That ought to be incentive. You have the incentive of salvation, you have the incentive of service, and next week we'll see the incentive for sanctification. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your resurrection that you've poured upon your people as wretched as we are. You have only given us eternal life. Gosh. Father, may we bow before your throne, overwhelmed with that idea. Father, with the cloud of witnesses that have gone before us, namely Jesus, for the joy endured the cross and its shame. Father, whatever you set before us, may we endure it. For the joy set before us, to your glory and to your praise. Thank you, Father. Thank you that the grave could not hold your son. And by that, many come to the redemption. To your praise and glory. Amen.